0: Part 2, Chapter 17 of Life and Lillian Gish This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne Part 2, Chapter 17 Way Down East Griffith now began work on his greatest melodrama. Way Down East had been successful as a book and a play, and was precisely the sort of thing he could do best. From William A. Brady, for a large sum, he secured the picture rights and plunged into production. There were to be two great outdoor scenes a blizzard in which the heroine, who has been inveigled into a mock marriage and is therefore under the New England Code, fallen and outcast is lost and the frozen river which blinded and desperate she reaches to be carried to the falls on a cake of ice there was very little that was artificial about such scenes in that day the blizzard had to be a real one the ice real ice most of it at any rate griffith began rehearsing some scenes at claridge's hotel in new york continuing steadily for eight weeks. But all the time there was an order that in case of a blizzard night or day, all hands were to report at the mamaroneck studio. Lillian had taken Stanford White's house on Orienta Point. Reading the play, she knew it was going to be an endurance test, and went into training for it. Cold baths, walks in the cold against the wind, exercises she had faith in her body being equal to any emergency if prepared for it in a magazine article a few years later she wrote the memorable day of march sixth arrived and with it a snowstorm and a ninety mile an hour gale as i was living in Mamarinac near the studio i quickly reported and was made up as anna moore ready but not eager for the work to be done The scene to be taken was the one just after the irate squire Bartlett turns Anna out of the house into the storm. Dazed and all but frozen, she wanders about through the snow and finally to the river. The Griffith Studio was on a point or arm well out in Long Island Sound. The wind swept this narrow strip with great fury. The cameras Had their backs to the gale. She had to face it. She had been out only a short time when her face became caked with snow. Around her eyes, this would melt, her lashes became small icicles. Griffith wanted this and brought the cameras up close. Her lids were so heavy she could scarcely keep them open. No need of spectacular falls. The difficulty was to keep her feet. She was beaten back, flung about like a toy. Her face became drawn and twisted, almost out of human semblance. When she could stand no more and was half unconscious, they would pull her back to the studio on a little sled and give her hot tea. A brief rest and back to the gale. Griffith had invested a large sum in the picture, and she must make good. One could not count on another blizzard that season. Harry Carr writes, That blizzard scene in way down east was real. It was taken in the most god-awful blizzard I ever saw. Three men lay flat to hold the legs of each camera. I went out four times in order to be a hero but sneaked back suffocated and half dead. Lillian stuck out there in front of the cameras. D.W. would ask her if she could stand it, and she would nod. The icicles hung from her lashes, and her face was blue. When the last shot was made, they had to carry her to the studio. A week or two later, they were at White River Junction, Vermont, For the ice scenes, Griffith took a great many of his company and they put up at an old fashioned hotel, a place of hospitality and good food. White River Junction is at the confluence of the White and Connecticut Rivers. There is no fall there, but the current moves at the rate of six miles an hour and the water is deep. The ice was from twelve to sixteen inches thick and a good-sized piece of it made a fairly safe craft but it was wet and slippery and very cold it was frozen solid when they arrived had to be sawed and dynamited to get pieces for the floating scene lillian conceived the idea of letting her hand and hair drag in the water it was effective, but her hand became frosted the chances of pneumonia increased. To the writer recently, Richard Bartlemas, who had the star part opposite Lillian, said, Not once, but twenty times a day for two weeks, Lillian floated down on a cake of ice, and I made my way to her, stepping from one cake to another to rescue her. I had on a heavy fur coat, and if I had slipped... Or if one of the cakes had cracked and let me through, my chances would not have been good. As for Lillian, why she did not get pneumonia, I still can't understand. She has a wonderful constitution. Before we started, Griffith had us insured against accident and sickness. Lillian, frail as she looked, was the only one of the company who passed 100 percent perfect condition and health no accidents happened the story that i missed a signal and did not reach lillian in time and that she came near going over the falls would indicate that she made the float on the ice-cake but once as i say she made it numberless times and there were no falls lillian was never nervous and never afraid i don't think either of us thought of anything serious happening though when i was carrying her stepping from one ice cake to another we might easily have slipped in i would not make that picture again for any money that a producer would be willing to pay for it at the end of the ice scene there is an instant when the cake at the brink of a fall seems to start over just as bartlemas carrying lillian steps from it to another and another half slipping in before he reaches the bank The critical moment at the brink of the fall was made in summertime, at Winchell Smith's Farm near Farmington, Connecticut. The ice cakes here were painted blocks of wood or boxes, and were attached to piano wire. There was a real fall of fifteen feet at this place, and once a carpenter went over and was considerably damaged. In the picture as shown, Niagara was blended into this fall with startling effect. Bartlemas remembers that Lillian kept mostly to herself. She took her work very seriously, too much so, in the opinion of her associates. But once there was a barn dance at the hotel, in which she joined. And once she and Bartlemas drove over to Dartmouth College, not far distant, with Mr. and Mrs. Elmer Clifton, to a dinner given by Bartlemas' fraternity. After dinner, they heard a great, Tramp, Tramp, and someone said to Lillian, It's the college boys coming to kidnap you. They sometimes did such pranks for a lark. But they only wanted to pay their respects. They gathered outside the window, which Mr. Clifton opened, and both Lillian and Bartlemas spoke to them through it. The summer scenes of Way Down East were made at Farmington and at the Mamaroneck studio. Griffith had selected a fine cast, among them Lowell Sherman, the villain, Burr McIntosh as Squire Bartlett, Kate Bruce, his wife, Mary Hay, their niece, and Vivia Ogden, the village gossip. The scene where Squire Bartlett drives Anna Moore from his home was realistic in its harshness, and poor Burr McIntosh, a sweet soul who long before had played taffy in Trilby and who loved Lillian dearly, could never get over having been obliged to turn her out into the storm. Often, in after years, he begged her to forgive him. A few minor incidents connected with the making of Way Down East may be recalled. Griffith had spent a great sum of money for the rights, two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, it is said, and was spending a great many more thousands producing it. He was naturally on a good deal of attention. All were working to the limit of their strength, but they could not hold the pitch indefinitely when bartlemas who was short had to stand on a two-inch piece of board to cope on terms of equality with lowell sherman sherman who was a trained actor on the stage could and did make invisible side remarks which made bartlemas laugh whereupon griffith raged at the waste of time and film and everybody was sorry the villain penitent stop that laughing turn around and face the camera or sharp admonitions perpetuated by a right-about face in the picture to this day it was harsh in form rather than by intention they did not resent their scoldings they believed in griffith knew something of his problems and wanted him to make good there was one scene during which griffith had no word to offer the scene in which anna moore Lillian, baptizes her dying child harry carr writes the only time i ever saw a stagehand cry was in the baptism scene in way down east it was made in a boxed-off corner with only d w lillian the cameraman a stagehand and myself there everybody cried it never made the same impression on the screen because it was necessary to interrupt the action with the subtitles you saw her dripping the water on the baby's head then a subtitle flashed on saying in the name of the father etc and the spell was broken carr lillian and griffith would sit far into the night watching rushes from the scenes made the day before it was a drowsy occupation so many of the same thing and after a day in the open it was not surprising that carr should nod across a misty plain of sleep griffith's voice would come to him which shot did you like best carr it is noticeable in the baptism scene that lillian sits relaxed her knees apart that when she leaves the house she walks with a dragging step as one who had recently experienced the struggle and agonies of childbirth it has been suggested that she had visited a maternity hospital for these details when asked she said no i did not do that there was an old woman connected with the studio who had borne a number of children she told me all that i needed to know i learned something too from pictures of the madonna by old masters i noticed in all of them that the madonna sat with her knees apart I felt that there must be a good reason for painting her in that way. She had studied out every detail of the scenes she was to play. Many actors, even among the best, work by another method. They absorb the feeling of the plot, fling themselves into a scene depending upon an angel to kindle the divine fire. This method never was Lillian's to her the bush never of itself became a burning bush she lit the fire and tended it she knew the effect she wanted to produce and found no research too tedious no rehearsal too long no effort too great to achieve her end way down east was shown in october griffith and lillian and bartlemas were present in person in the larger cities it was like a triumphal tour To present the world's darling in scenes of actual danger on the screen and then have her appear in person was to invite something in the nature of a riot reporters indulged in the most extravagant language and there was a fresh head of poetry and of letters love letters many of them but letters also from persons distinctly worthwhile david belasco whose most beautiful blonde verdict had long since gone into the discard de mode wrote dear Lillian gish it was a revelation to see the little girl who was with me only a few years ago moving through the pictured version of way down east with such perfect acting in this play you reach the very highest point in action charm and delightful expression it made me happy too to see how you and your name appeal to the public congratulations on a splendid piece of work and good wishes for your continued success faithfully david belasco john barrymore went even further when he wrote my dear mr griffith i have for the second time seen your picture of way down east any personal praise of yourself or your genius regarding the picture i would naturally consider redundant and a little like carrying coals to Newcastle. I have not the honor of knowing Miss Gish personally, and I am afraid that any expression of feeling expressed to her she might consider impertinent. I merely wish to tell you that her performance seems to me to be the most superlatively exquisite and poignantly enchaining thing that I have ever seen in my life i remember seeing ducet in this country many years ago when i imagine she must have been at the height of her powers also madame bernhardt and for sheer technical brilliancy and great emotional projection done with an almost uncanny simplicity and sincerity of method it is great fun and a great stimulant to see an american artist equal if not surpass the finest traditions of the theatre I wonder if you would be good enough to thank Miss Gish from all of us who are trying to do the best we know how in the theatre. Believe me. Yours very sincerely, John Barrymore. Mrs. Gish, who was not a motion picture enthusiast, made a single comment. Well, young lady, she said, you've set quite a high mark for yourself. How are you going to live up to it? Way Down East was one of the most popular and profitable pictures ever made. Net returns from it ran into the millions. It has had several revivals, and at the present writing, Winter 1931, is being shown at the Cameo Theater, New York, with sound. Its day, however, is over. Taste has changed, has become what an older generation might regard as unduly sophisticated, depraved. This, with mechanical advancement, the talking feature, for instance, tells the story. A picture of even ten years ago, five years ago, is without a public. Way down east is a melodrama, but one that at moments rises to considerable heights, putting aside the spectacular features of the picture, the blizzard and the ice drift, where melodrama is raised to the nth degree. The scene where the villain reveals to his victim that their marriage was a mockery. The scene where Anna Moore, about to be turned out into the storm, denounces her betrayer. And the baptismal scene, already mentioned, are drama, and as Lillian Gish gave them, worthy. And after all, what is and is not melodrama? And cheap. Cheap because... It is human that is why we have invented for ourselves a hereafter a place away from it all of rest by green fields and running brooks very well let us agree that the play was cheap especially the comedy which was low comedy and about the record in that direction but if lillian's acting was cheap and poor Then there is very little to be said for any acting, which God knows may be true enough after all. End of part two. Chapter seventeen. Recording by John Brandon.